know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I'm your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we choose one year at random and select one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. Today was a little bit of a listener's choice. A little bit. I'll I'll explain that. (laughs) So uh, we put up a poll of a couple different albums from the same year. 1990 is the year that we were talking about today. We put up a poll, and it wound up being a three-way tie. <laughs> of how many votes? Uh, it was all the Patreon voters. So we had, well, it's not even all the Patreon people, but we had 11 votes on the Patreon. So a three-way oh. tie out of 11. So <laughs> whatever that was. It was like 27%, 27%, 27%, and then like 13%. But Yeah. So, yeah, it was a little bit up to the up to the listeners, but then they couldn't decide either, which was funny because that was the whole reason why we put the poll up in the first place is because I couldn't decide what to talk about. And uh, neither could they, apparently. But upon putting the poll out there, uh, I think we discovered what we would feel like we would have the most to talk about pretty easily. So uh, we'll talk about those other possibilities whenever we uh, get to the chart section. But if you want to vote in a poll like that, head on over to our Patreon where you get access to all of our weekly bonus audio for $1. And last week we did a Master Punk Theater, which is our movie review series based on tangentially punk films. And we covered the 1990 film Pump Up the Volume, a music movie slash not really. But <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a really good time talking about that. It does relate to the album we're talking about in kind of two ways, which we'll get into. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a funny little happenstance where I was like, oh, oh, I didn't know they had a song on here, too. But yeah, if you head over there, one dollar gets you all of that bonus audio. I've been tossing around the idea of bringing back new release Friday, except maybe not on Friday. It might just become a just like new release weekly where I just talk about the stuff that came out that week, because with my work schedule, I don't really have time to listen to as much music before I go to work on Friday. It'll be more of just like what I listen to across the week, but that will be returning shortly. Maybe I'll relaunch that along with our $5 tier whenever we get ready for that, which will include producer credits and live streams. But if you want to choose the album we talk about on the show without any voting necessary, like you could just say, talk about this and we'll do it. Do the $10 one-time donation. You can pick any anything within reason we have some veto power but pick an album we'll talk about it so we've done a bunch of those in the past they're really fun i love doing those and it takes the choosing outs which is always really fun you can get all that patreon.com slash punk you can follow us on all forms of social media instagram twitter and facebook at punk our voicemail line 202-688-PUNK our email address is punk at gmail.com and yeah i think that's everything so when it's just you and me i either assign you the year or i assign me the year I need to have you start assigning the year. I don't know how or what you would do, but I guess I could give you the decade and you pick the year just based, based on, on rotation. what we haven't done in yeah. a while. Cause that's really the main way I choose what year to assign. When we have a guest, I'll ask them what decade are they most comfortable with. And the, just to get an idea, cause I don't want to give somebody like a year that or like a year that they're like, I don't, I don't know any of these 
bands because we've had that happen before. So uh, we, uh, I get an idea of their frame of reference for the type of music they know. And then I assign them a year based on the year we've covered in the longest amount of time. So when it's just you and I, I we tend to just rotate through the decades. And so because we're down to talk about any decade. And we hadn't done the 90s in a couple weeks. So I was like, OK, we're due for the 90s again. And I was like, OK, 1990 is the one we haven't done in the longest. It, I think it was like January of 2022 is the last time we did 1990. So I was like, OK, let's do that year. And funnily enough, I don't know what year that was. It would have been might have been 2013. I did this really long project where I listened to as much music from the year 1990 as I possibly could. And I did like a big blog post. It was like top 25 albums turning 25 on our old blog. And I was like, I've I know a lot of these records really well. I don't know quite what to pick. So that's when I came up with the choice of just doing like a, a poll. And so the four albums that we had selected, I'll tell you the other three first. So the one that came in last place, we'll talk about that one first. That was Remain Sedate by Rorschach. Which, excellent record. Part of the reason why I was torn on which one one to do is because I was like, man, if we do that Rorschach record rules. There's two main Rorschach LPs. I think this one's the better of the two. The other one's called Protestant, I believe. And Remains Today, I think, just was so cool and way ahead of its time. Just like a hard ripping, hardcore, metallic, hardcore thing. This predates, it didn't even predate like integrity. And I feel like it, I don't know if they were an influence on integrity because I don't know who influenced Dwid, but the satanic verses of <laughs> Slayer? I don't know. What was Dwid listening to? I don't know. I could see Slayer. Celtic Frost? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that Rorschach album rules. Yeah, it's a great record. Rorschach, when you sent me those four, I was like, mm, man, that Rorschach is it's a really good one. And I think I didn't push for that one just because I think, like, how much can we can we say? Hardcore can be tricky. I think Rorschach, there's enough, you know, these artists, these people were also in this band. You know, there's enough of that stuff to kind of branch off to mm-hmm. talk about. Rorschach would be a good one to talk about at some point, though. Yeah. And beginning our three-way tie, we had Helmet and their album Strap It On, which was the very first Helmet album. Yeah, which I was like. Not that one. <laughs> if we're gonna, if we're we're gonna do a helmet episode, it, I would say Unsung or Betty. Yeah, the, the one I would pick. But yeah, those are the big ones. I've heard I've heard this album before, and it's probably it's not my favorite helmet record. I think I like all the other ones I've heard more. It's the very first one, so they they hadn't quite nailed down the sound. Well, I, I take that back. The sound is there. It's like it sounds like helmet, but I don't think like the songwriting is quite there yet. I think they get better. As they go on. But that was that was actually I was surprised to see that one as popular as it was because it, it's not like the helmet record. Our other tie was No Depression by Uncle Tupelo. And this was the other one where I was just I was very much like, should we do this one? Because one, the record's amazing. It is the Uncle Tupelo record to do. My only hesitancy was like, is it punk enough? But I guess it's almost as punk as the one we're talking about today, really. Yeah. Um, 
it's probably one of the most punk country records ever recorded. Um, I'd say there's even... like some Lucero that might might get there more. Like nobody's darlings. Depends on how uh, actually country you consider Lucero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Uncle Tupelo comes closer to being truly country music. Lucero is more like southern rock <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, nobody's darling. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty country. Tennessee, for sure. Mm. Of the Lucero records. Yeah, this was one I was like, uh, I really like that record. I could talk about that a so lot. What this, what this really does is just just lets us know the next two times we do 1990, you know, without a guest. <laughs> we know what to talk about. Yeah. Helmet, Helmet and Uncle Tupelo. <laughs> But uh, if it was up to you, what would you select for us to talk about from 1990? It, it is really it is really close between Rorschach, Uncle Tupelo and what we are talking about. Ultimately, like because all three, I have different reasons for why I would want to talk about them. Like Rorschach because it rips uh, Uncle Tupelo because I think it's great. And uh, how often do I do you get to would we have the opportunity to talk about alt country on this show? So there's plenty to talk about there and. Uh, but the record that we picked, I'm, I'm kind of glad that this is the record that we're talking about by this artist. Like, yes. It's the one I would, it's the one from their discography I would actually be most inclined to talk about on this show. It's not my favorite, which we'll get into, but I think it's the one that's most deserving of conversation, especially in relation to what we generally talk about on this show, you know, and might be the one that's best classified as a punk record of their four. Yeah. Uh, part of my reason for selecting these four is because I wanted to choose something that an album by someone that we have not devoted an episode to before, because there was a lot of other like really, really great selections from 1990 that I was just like, mm, that'd be cool to talk about. This would be a good one. But I was like, but we've done their album, another album by them in the past or like, one that I was definitely leaning towards was Black Sheets of Rain by Bob Mould. It might be my favorite solo Bob Mould record, but we've also done like three Husker Du albums yeah. on the show at this point. No, even four, because we did the very first record with John Russell of Gnawing a long time ago. But then we've done Flip Your Wig and Zen Arcade. And then I even did Candy Apple Gray for the Dance of Days series. So, like, we've devoted a lot of time to Husker Du. And yes, Bob Mould is solo, but we've talked about his songs a lot in the past. So I was like, right, let's let's go a different direction, even though I genuinely love that album. I put that up there with, like, the two Sugar records as far as, like, some of his best post Husker Du stuff. I was also very strongly thinking about Fuel's self-titled album. The original Fuel, not the grunge one. The uh, Berkeley. Were they Berkeley? They definitely played Gilman. Sarah Kirsch Band. Their one lone LP. Incredible album. Probably my favorite record of 1990, if we're being completely honest. The album is incredible. Just this awesome, like, emo core, post-hardcore thing. So, so good. Predates a lot of the Hot Water music sound, which they definitely borrowed from. 
Leatherface released Fill Your Boots, which is one of the the pre-Mush albums. And I love Fill Your Boots. I think it's a fantastic record. But like I said, we've done Mush before on the show, so I was like, eh, we we can we can wait on that one. The Leatherface records are so consistent that for the purposes of our show, we probably don't ever need to talk about another Leatherface record. Yeah. Of course, if someone wants to talk about a Leatherface record, especially if they're going to be like, Stormy Petrol is amazing. That's the record they want to talk about. Like, sure, that's a that's an off the beaten path choice to make. But really, almost everything that we said about Mush, you can say about every other Leatherface record. It's like they're such a consistent band. And what makes Mush the record that it is, is it's just like it's that two percent better than it is than every other record in their discography it's such a small difference and we have in the past covered way back in episode 55 slapshot sudden death overtime <laughs> but we also did on that episode rain's lavashki writ which that was the main star of that episode to me that was also an episode we did that episode with adam yo i think that might have been one of our first adam yo episodes actually now that i think about it but yeah, I love that Rain EP. It's like six songs, but so good. And then in episode 124, we covered Jawbreaker's Unfun, which we did that with Angelo of Magazine Beach, who they put out a new record this year that is very good that everyone should go check out. But really, it's the worst Jawbreaker record, too. <laughs> well, Bivouac. no, Bivouac is the worst Jawbreaker record. I love Unfun. I think Bivouac has higher highs than Unfun, but also lower lows. Like, there's stuff on there that I'm not just like, I do not want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. As an album, I kind of put Unfun on on the same level with Dear You. I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> it's 24-hour, Dear You and Unfun, and then Bivouac. That's my jawbreaker ranking. And then in episode 172, we covered Goo by Sonic Youth with Chris from Big Nothing. And uh, now that we've had some time since we've listened to that Sonic Youth record, do you like them any more than you did? No, I'm at, I mean, yeah, they're about the same to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just have a more of a less disdain for them than I used to have. I just I really did not like them. And even listening to that goo record, I was like, I st- it's I still don't love it. Yeah. Sonic Youth, I, I feel about the way I feel about them is that they are a band that I respect for sure. <laughs> not mad at anybody for loving Sonic Youth. And they are because of that, I have given them many chances (laughs) and I have listened to enough of different records in their discography to say I'm not really interested in that band, (laughs) but it's cool for everyone else. Is there anything else from 1990 that you'd be interested in? Stay sick by the cramps. Yeah, that would be cool. I've, Cramps was another one that I've done. You know, we did the episode Songs of the Lord Taught Us. And then I did for Dance of Days, I did another one of their records. I'm trying to uh, date with Elvis. That's the one I did with that one. So like that was one I was just like, eh, OK, I think I've said all that I can say about the Cramps without like a guest being on the show. Uh, I really like Ben Hur by Bitch Magnets. It's a really good record. one that i've just 
I'm not sure that I would pick because I don't know how much I would have to say about it. Because we've done a lot of those kind of bands in the last like year too. Yeah, and we I feel like we kind of land on the same points every time. Mm-hmm. It's like that's a really interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's similar to what the Shiner album we did and Chavez record and the Crown Hit Ruin. Yeah, we've done a th- lot of those kind of bands. I think yeah, it's it's Sue Young Park of seam and i'm glad that we talked about the seam because yeah. i think that's a band that I, I had more to say about than bitch magnet i'm very intrigued by uh if we're this is not a punk record i guess bloodletting by concrete blonde that would be yeah an interesting record to dig into because that is a very strange band (laughs) yeah most of the stuff that is interesting to me though is there's just it's redundant it's too much stuff that we've talked about before on this show yeah well then let's get into the record that actually won well it didn't win the poll like i said it was a three-way tie but i dylan and i decided we would be the tiebreaker in this instance and after hearing a little bit of feedback from different people about this album, I think we were like, all right, I think I think this is the one to go with because I think you and I have the most to talk about with this album. So we are talking about Bossa Nova by the Pixies. Stats on the band. The Pixies are from Boston, Massachusetts, and they formed in 1986. That's the year I was born. And they released this album on August 13th, 1990 on 4AD Records in the UK and then distributed in the US on Elektra Records. This is the band's third full-length album and was their follow-up to their most successful album to date, Doolittle. And the personnel on this record is Black Francis on guitar and vocals, Kim Deal on bass and vocals, David Lovering on drums and vocals, and Joey Santiago on guitars. And the album was produced by Gil Norton, who previously produced their last record. And let's talk about 
before we get into the details of the actual album, let's talk about our individual histories with the Pixies. So I've talked a lot. So you go first. So my Pixies um, history goes back to the let me find the year. It's very specific to the 2004 recorded, I think, broadcast in 2005 episode of Austin City Limits, where they played a reunion show because they had been. How long were they done? Was that like the first reunion by the Pixies? I think 03 was when they first started getting back together. But yeah, 04, I think, was like when they were doing their first shows back. Um, I saw that on TV, just on whatever, on PBS, whatever channel showed um, Austin City Limits in our region. On like a, I don't know what night it would have been. I guess I think typically they showed those on the weekend. So it would have been like a weekend night. I was 15, I guess, 14, maybe, depending on when this was actually broadcast. And just flipping through the channels, not interested in what else was on. It just happened to be on, I guess, within that like small window where there's not a Simpsons rerun to watch, uh, you know, whatever syndication that we watched. <laughs> I want to say they showed it on Sunday nights, so it's not like Saturday Night Live would have been an option. It would have been before that anyway. It would have been probably like a 10 o'clock. And <sighs> I just I just happened to land on it. Like I just say, like see this band performing I never really watched Austin City Limits before then so it wasn't really a show I was aware of uh, or tuning in to watch so just happened to see them and I heard enough of the music to be like oh, I'm interested in this and then like so I just watched like the rest of that performance I don't remember the whole set list I want to say I can find that set list I want to say one of the songs that jumped out to me uh they did play Cactus from Surferosa and that song in particular really stood out to me in that performance. And I didn't really wouldn't have known anything else, but that was my favorite of what I saw from that set. And then there's kind of a after the performance, there's a little bit of a interview segment that kind of like rolled over the credits, I think. And they were just like talking to them about the reunion. And so it was like, oh, this is a this is a legendary band that has just reunited. <laughs> This band I don't know anything about is now in my head a hallowed band. So it really kind of from there had a pretty consistent but muted interest in the Pixies because they've never I didn't dive into their discography after that. It was just kind of like, oh, that's an interesting band. I will file that away. And then I think probably in college got really into Surferosa as a record and listened to most of their other discography. But I loved Surferosa. I loved that record from beginning to end. It's it's almost a five star record for me. And it's it's the one that I come back to the most because I don't go through a lot of Pixies phases. So when I do, I I reach for the one that's going to give me the the automatic serotonin familiarity, you know, (laughs) boost and be like, yeah, I love this record. (laughs) But over the over the years, I've listened to other records in their discography. I have heard all of their first four records and some pretty familiar. I think the fourth record I don't know as well, but say that and I can look at the track listing and I'm like, I know Tromplemon has like Alec Eiffel and UMass and her dream of Olympus Mons. I don't know. There's, there's songs I know on that record too. So it's probably the one I've just willfully put on the least. (laughs) 
You know, it's funny that you you tell you tell the Austin City Limits story because I remember you telling me about it after you watched it. I remember you being like, hey, "This is band. They're called the Pixies. They're kind of like a punk band." Like, and I, and I remember being like, "What? Who is this band? We've never. Who's this punk band we've never heard of called the Pixies?" Like, and you're like, "They've been around for a really long time too." And I was like what why don't why didn't i know that like it was really weird that like i'd heard of husker do and like fugazi and all these other bands when i was younger even but the pixies was one that i was just like who is that (laughs) like i don't know how they had missed me at that point well so what what it is is i mean they're not a punk band which is why we hadn't heard of them within the context of punk they're an alternative band, but they're one of those alternative bands that didn't get played on our alternative rock radio stations. True. Though over time, I would eventually be like, I know that song. Like, because it would get used in like movie trailers and commercials, like yeah. in the late 90s and the 2000s before. Like, I think the first time I ever heard, like, Here Comes Your Man in the context of the Pixies, I was like, Oh, I feel like I've seen this in a commercial for like <laughs> something or a movie and even gigantic. I feel like got used to in like trailers like I I encountered Pixies songs before, but did not know who the Pixies were and did not know that those were Pixies songs when I'd heard them. So my real introduction, besides you telling me that about them, which is always funny to have that telling each other about a band before <laughs> like either of us had heard anything is it was a very funny way of. Because that would happen a few times. And Austin City Limits was always a frustrating show for me when I was younger. Because I like maybe saw somebody cool on there one time that I knew. And then I never recognized another single artist ever again on that show. Anytime at, at like 15, 16 years old, like changing channels. Be like, who's on tonight? And I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> it's country. Because they always did a lot of country stuff and folk stuff. But uh, my... I guess my real introduction to the Pixies would be where is my mind being played over the end credits of Fight Club, which is such a like broy way to be introduced to the to the Pixies and be like, yeah, Fight Club. Have you seen Fight Club? Oh, my God. It's so cool. Um, I've never read Fight Club, so I can't be that guy, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite book is Fight Club. Oh, no. That's worse than. Fight Club is my favorite movie, guys. <laughs> yeah, Fight Club is movie poster guy. It's like Fight Club and Kill Bill always on like the same guy's walls in in their apart in their dorm. Because <laughs> because Fight Club movie guy is a populist. He's kind of <laughs> dumb, but he's a common man. <laughs> Fight Club book guy is smarter than you, <laughs> and that's annoying. And so. Pixies were like a band that I was like, I I probably downloaded like random songs over the years, too. And then like I was like, OK, I was like, let's dive into the Pixies. The first album I bought, I bought it on CD when I worked at Barnes and Noble. One of the handful of times where I was like, I would like to purchase a CD and bought it. This was still like final wasn't really back yet or like it was for some. It was mainly like old stuff. And uh, so I bought it and my co-worker who has, shares the same birthday as me which i always thought was very funny because we like haven't seen each other in years and we still will say happy birthday to each other on facebook just because it's like we have the same birthday and uh she was like let me know if it's any good because she for some reason had never really listened to the pixies either 
she was like me like just like we should both be familiar with this band but we weren't for whatever reason and like i fell in love with that record wholeheartedly i was just like this record's fucking amazing i love it except for tony's song worst song on the album uh and then i had our other friend grant who runs bitter melody records he was like doodle's better and i was like really and it took me forever to to listen to it and then one day i was like asleep and then like I saw that I had like five missed calls from him and I was like, what the hell? So I called him back. He's like, why didn't you answer your phone? I was like, oh, I was asleep. He's like, well, the Pixies are playing Doolittle in its entirety in Asheville. Um, I was calling to ask you if you wanted to go, but I just went ahead and bought you a ticket. I was like, whoa. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have said no because the tickets were like 50 bucks. He's like, they're 50 bucks, but I already bought them. So you're going. So <laughs> uh, I went and saw the Pixies. The night of my roommate's wedding. <laughs> and I lied and said I had to work. <laughs> I was just like, look, he bought these tickets. I'm going to see the Pixies. <laughs> like, and I don't like you guys that much. So. <laughs> and I listened to Doolittle a lot because Grant also burned me a copy of it on CD. He's like, here, you need to listen to this. So I had it. And he he burned me a copy of that with End of a Year's You Are Beneath Me. <laughs> because I hadn't burned a copy for myself yet. And he had, he's like, do you have this? He didn't want to waste the CD. So he was like, do you have this one? Okay, I'll put it on there too. <laughs> Back in our days where you just like, here, I burned it for you. And uh, my wife and I, and at the time we were literally just starting to date, spent like a month driving around Hickory with that in her CD player as we were like looking for apartments. So like Doolittle got played on repeat a lot while we were trying to find a place to live so because we were getting kicked out by those roommates who just got married so pixies are pretty like doolittle is there for me in a very significant period of my life <laughs> so yeah Bossa Nova, the third album by the Pixies. I had I listened to it when I did that project where I was doing albums from 1990 back then. And I remember liking it, but not loving it. And just I didn't think I included it even in my top 25 for that year. I think that was just me going like, it's pretty good. 
it just didn't hook me for at the time. But yeah, so this record was released at a pretty chaotic period for the Pixies. After Doolittle was released, Kim Deal and Frank Black, they were not getting along. They did a show in Stuttgart where he threw a guitar at Kim. Uh, then they almost fired Kim from a show in Frankfurt. She was refusing to play, so they threatened to fire her. Um, I don't know if she wound up actually playing that show or not. And the real the argument really came between there was just a power struggle between Frank and Kim. Kim wanted more of her songs on the records, which is understandable because she was a songwriter in her own right. Like and she'd written some really great songs for the first two albums. So, like, yeah, of course, you want to get more stuff out there. And then Frank, I get the impression Frank was um, difficult to work with and he just did not want to give up that power that. But that's a dynamic that's happened a lot of times with any band that has two songwriters in it. There's a lot of times one that just does not want to let go of that because they feel threatened by it. And Kim, I think, eventually was just like, fine, Frank, it's Frank's band now. And they stopped talking. They just like didn't talk to each other anymore. They had been touring pretty much nonstop since Doolittle came out. They were exhausted. They were all they're really all fighting each other. And when they finished their post Doolittle tour, they went on hiatus. So in that time, David and Joey, they just go on vacation. Because they're like, cool, we're not touring right now. Let's go on vacation. Frank goes on a solo tour and then Kim starts the breeders. So clearly, like, that's the definition of like, this is their dynamics. David and Joey are just like along for the ride. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't do anything until we get to the studio. (laughs) We don't have songwriting duties. And yeah, Kim is like probably looking for her way out Mm -hmm. with the breeders. Just being either it's just her outlet for her songs or it's like, I need to get another man to take off. I got to <laughs> leave the pixie. I can't do this shit. Yeah. So Kim is in England. She's recording the first Breeders album, which was released in 1990. Pod is the name of that record. We could talk about that later. So she's in England. She's doing that. And then the band's like, well, hey, let's uh, let's just go record the record. They went to Los Angeles. They moved to Los Angeles, the three of them. Because I think they were still in Massachusetts before. And they're like, and they said they moved there just because that's where the recording studio was. So they moved out there. They move into this apartment complex that they share. They're, it's the same apartment complex that uh, Garrett Morris of SNL lived in. And as well as members of White Lion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and Gil Norton um, also moved in. Yeah. Producer. Yeah, their producer. And so, yeah, Kim's in England. She's recording that Breeders record with Steve Albini. So, like, she won Steve in, in, the, in the battle, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Albini did Surferosa, but he didn't do Doolittle. Gil Norton did Doolittle. And, uh, yeah, so the band booked studio time. And then for some reason, they didn't have a lot of time to practice beforehand. Because what they would do before is they would just practice like crazy, like the songs over and over and over again before they went into the studio. And so... They didn't actually like write a lot of the songs until they were in the studio and that Frank writes most of the songs. Kim flies back from England to join them in the studio. I guess she's just like, well, I'm going to be on this record, even if I'm not writing the songs, because <laughs> who knows if the breeders is going to take off, you know. And then the recording was supposedly pretty tough. They couldn't record after 6 p.m. <laughs> because the board would pick up a pirate radio station. There we go. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Tying into our pump up the volume bonus audio there. 
so basically they're just like ah, god damn it and so while they were waiting for that they ran into another problem where the guitar when it was plugged in would just make a really loud hum so i guess there's like something was wrong with like the wiring or the grounding or something in there and uh i think the the band and the producer had run into Rick Rubin at a bar and then was telling them like, man, the studio is a piece of shit. And then so he's, he had his secretary find them a new studio. And then that's where they went in and actually recorded the record. Yeah. There's the like, one, two, there's like five studios that are listed uh, on this record. Cherokee, which is the one where they were having all of the sound issues in Hollywood. Uh, and then there's like something in Glendale and, Silver Lake Studios, which I'm like, I don't know a Silver Lake Studio, which I was kind of looking into that earlier. And it's, um, I believe it was a studio on Hyperion Avenue. So it's kind of like Northern Silver Lake. Um, and it was owned by Steve Milang until from like 75 to 98. And he relocated to Acton, California. He was part of a children's folk duo called Steve and Greg. <laughs> so uh, just a guy with with a studio where they were using his face um, doesn't really have anything to do with the record it's just weird <laughs> which that property is currently available i believe for mixed use uh <laughs> live work uh and then there's like one song was recorded uh while they were on tour uh blown away was written and recorded it was written in spain while they were on tour and then it was recorded when gil was flown in at Hansa Ton Studio in Berlin uh, after a Pixies show. So one song on here was recorded while they were on tour before the record even was recorded, like slated yeah. to be recorded. Most of it probably wasn't written yet. And yeah, so the big noticeable difference on this record from Doolittle is there is a very heavy surf influence on this album. And I'd say there's even like maybe a little bit more of a punky approach to some of the songwriting as well. And I guess we'll open up now to like talking about the actual album. So before we've recorded, you've intimated to me that uh, you've got some hot takes on Bossa Nova. So we'll go ahead and get this out of the way. I don't love Doolittle <laughs> uh, as an album. I just from beginning to end, it is not a consistently enjoyable record for me. I it's I haven't spent enough time with Tromplemon, so I don't know where that one sits. I think there's incredible songs on on Doolittle, obviously. Wave of Mutilation, Here Comes Your Man, Gouge Away, you know, Debaser. There's tons of great stuff on there. I think that's a I think that's a record with a really good collection of songs, but it also has stuff that I can't stand, that I cannot listen to. It is <laughs> it is a multiple skips album to me. <laughs> and I've never really fully understood why it's the one that people love when Surfer Rose is right there. Uh, Surfer Rose is my favorite. It's the one I, I can enjoy listening to from beginning to end the most with maybe moments here and there that I don't love. But nothing I really want to skip. I don't even hate Tony's theme the way that you do. Um, <laughs> I just hate the way it starts. This is a song about a superhero named Tony. I'm like. This is stupid. <laughs> so I I like Bossa Nova more than Doolittle, uh, which most people do not agree. And most people that we've talked to um, and a lot of people that I've encountered online think Tromplemond is better than do than Bossa Nova, which I can probably see the argument for that. Kim probably has more to contribute to Tromplemond. Tromplemond's my least favorite. 
uh, it's too weird. To me, it doesn't even sound like a Pixies record. But I, I've also not spent a ton of time with it. My prior feelings on Bossa Nova before revisiting it for the show, I was like, it was just there. Like, it was just, like, fine. It's like Come On Pilgrim for me. It's just, like, pretty good. And that's the yeah. extent of my feelings about it. Yeah, I... So I had my first impression of Bossa Nova was that was that 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 it's fine. It's not really like it just doesn't have standout songs or it didn't to me on that first listen. I want to say it was probably like 2015 the first time I really listened to it. But I did really love the song Havelina off of this record. I listened to that song a bunch. It it became one of the, the Pixie songs that I reached for. The most it probably is my favorite Pixie song. Weird. Of all time. It's, it's an odd choice and it's 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 an unusual Pixie song. Which it kind of became I guess it became of personal significance as like moving to Arizona. It's about it's about Arizona. So that's tying it to a place for me specifically. But so like I kinda held this record, my opinion of it as being like, yeah, it's not as good as the first two. Which, you know, I didn't even have that strong of an opinion of Doolittle as being the great record. I just kind of like repeated what most people said about it. But I would, because of Havelina, I would kind of like come back to it. So, and I want to say, I want to say maybe in 2019, 2018 or 2019, I like, I gave it like another like serious listen, like from beginning to end. It would have been 2019. Uh, in October, actually. Yeah, because I did listen to it coming back from a trip to San Francisco. And so to me, this record is permanently the soundtrack for early evening, just after sunset, <laughs> past dusk, uh, somewhere in California on the <laughs> five, which is a stretch from like Modesto to Bakersfield that is just nothing it is it is absolutely barren and hostily um sparse (laughs) (laughs) so this record to me sounds like driving at night in the middle of nowhere california and like listening to it in that like isolated i have nothing to do but focus on this i think my wife had even fallen asleep so i'm just driving with this record (laughs) listening to every song intently and i'm like this is good. <laughs> like picking out the individual songs and being like, oh, that's a really good song. Oh, that song was really good. Oh, that one was really good. <laughs> Why did I think this was a boring, forgettable record when there are so many standout songs on it? Um, and I think it's a sneaky one. I think that it is. I think it's such a consistent sounding record that if you're not paying attention, it's easy to gloss over because it doesn't have the extreme variety that uh, especially a record like Doolittle has and even Surferosa to to some extent in terms of the different kinds of songs that they did on those records. They don't do that on this record, largely because Kim doesn't contribute. She has some backing vocals and she plays bass on the record. But yeah, she doesn't have any songwriting credits, I don't think. Side. 
So I was trying to figure out too, like where does that notion that Bossa Nova is just like it's fine. It's a, it, why people are just like yeah, those two are the main ones that anybody like really cares about with the Pixies. Because even like I was like looking at reviews for preparation for the show and I'm like listen to this four and a half stars all music five stars blender a minus entertainment weekly three stars la times okay whatever uh enemy nine out of ten pitchfork nine out of ten q four out of five stars rolling stones three stars man the mainstream publications are not faring well select four out of five and the village voice gave it an a it's well regarded it's positively reviewed with the exception of la times and rolling stone what do they know so it's like, why in my brain am I like, Bossa Nova's one that's fine. It's like, those are really good grades for an album. Is it because it's just kind of a more of the same, but it's not really more of the same. It's not. I mean, it's taking something that has been embedded in the Pixies from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It is ultimately kind of just it's mostly a surf punk record. Yeah. And it's taking that element from the first two records and running with it on every song. Yeah, because it feels more like a, an actual combination of Surferosa and Doolittle. Like, it feels more like a mixture of those two records than... Because those records are almost, like, polar opposites in, like, style and songwriting. Doolittle being the more exploratory and experimental songs. And Surferosa being the little bit, like, the punkier, harder-edged record. So... This this album feels like just like a really good mixture of those two albums with like an emphasis more on the surfy style guitars. But there's even like that do little kind of sounds on this album, too. Like there's the songs that feel very much like they would have been on do little like issue weird. Like issue weird feels just like a do little song. Yeah. So like, yeah, I don't know why I was because it, Every review online is positive, and yeah, maybe it's just because it wasn't groundbreaking, and everybody knew the drama going on. Maybe I think that it is a record that is overshadowed shadowed by the fact that this is the downward, you know, this is the decline of the Pixies. Like mm-hmm. from that explosion of Doolittle and of massive success for them, and cultural impact that that record had and has continued to have. This is kind of an unusual follow-up it's not a difficult third album because it's not reaching for anything that weird but it is i'm trying to think of i think it is a fairly safe record in a way because it doesn't really seem to have any intention of being a difficult third record even though creatively it is different like their entire creative process is very different because Kim doesn't write any songs, so there's no conflict between songwriters. There's no, I got to get my song on the record, you know, anything like that, that you would have expected from the third record, especially the follow-up to Doolittle. And they didn't practice these songs. They wrote them in the studio or wrote them right before the studio. And maybe that works better for Frank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe maybe when he has more time, uh, he gets to explore his uh worse worst impulses more <laughs> and if he's in the has the pressure of the studio he doesn't get to think about it that much and he just has to go with what seems obvious i think it worked for him on this record i don't think that he likes this record but you know who does joey joey it's and joey's, joey's a standout on this it's record. his favorite record he says which 
it was very funny because I was looking up articles about this album and I read like five different articles interviewing Joey about Doolittle on the 30th anniversary. Like, cause they did a reissue for it and every single, I guess like Frank didn't want to talk about it. So he made Joey do all the interviews and Joey, like five different interviews. It's like, Hey everybody, you know, some other people are going to be asking, like, do you all have to have a bossa Nova article interview with Joey on the anniversary? Like all of you have to do it. Cause it was essentially like reading the same article five different times. I was just like, okay, people. And it was just funny to me that they got Joey on every single interview for it. <laughs> because he gets a good set of songs to just play lead guitar on. Unimpeded. There's no weird song. I mean, there's a, some weird song structures. It's a Pixies. There's going to be weird song structures. But he doesn't have to compete with any, like, precious, like, you know, artist controlling aspect from either of them. Because Kim has her weird songs, too. Mm-hmm. Like, and he just gets a basic some, you know, not basic, but he gets a rock song, essentially, with a strong melody on most of the songs here that he gets to then just play guitar on. <laughs> and he sounds great. He's got so many great parts on here. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to serve someone else's vision and he gets to just play at his best. And I think he's probably like one of the stronger improvisers in the band um, because with this record being kind of written in the studio and recorded as quickly as it is, I'm sure they had to like kind of improvise and be decisive and say like, well, that's, that's the part. Cause we don't have time to write a better part. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is very much like the guitar record out of their albums. Cause they're doing, yeah, I think the surf influence is definitely like a reason why a lot of these songs turned out the way they do revisiting it. So like getting ready for the show, what, what did you think of it? So coming into revisiting this one, I'm like, I've recently listened to Doolittle and and kind of come to my conclusion on how I feel about that record. And I'm like, this one's been this is one that I've changed my opinion on in the past from not loving it to really liking it to. So I'm I'm kind of like, I think I like this. I'm pretty sure I like this but more than Doolittle. Can I rank this one on this listen? It still doesn't be Surferosa for sure, but. I was definitely excited going into it, but I'm like, I know it can even still be like kind of an uneven, odd record. And I think that the biggest mistake of the record is that it starts with the instrumental surf cover. Hmm. Cecilia Ann, it's weird. It's a weird choice. And it leads into rock music, which is one of my it's just not one of my favorite songs on the record. It's fine. So it's kind of like weird opening song. okay, second song. But Track three is Valoria, which rules. That's interesting because I don't I think it actually does start in a really fun way. I think choosing to start the record with the it's the surf tones as the original performers of the song. I thought it was like it was like a thesis statement for the album. I was like, this is what you're in for. It's Pixies doing surf rock is what the album is going to be. And rock music is a really hard song. So there's an intentional choice going on there from this like playful surf instrumental to like a really hard screaming yeah yeah that's, song. it's a frank shrieking song like it's definitely uh the he- heaviest song on the album i guess so yeah it is it definitely like if you're not scared off by the surf we're gonna sh- scare you off with the shrieking but we'd already heard shrieking on their previous record so you're not gonna scare too many people off 
But then you're right. They hit Valoria, which is one of their biggest hits, period. Uh, like it was number three on like the UK charts. The funny thing about that was they were like because it was so popular in England, like they were they were then being like, well, you might have to do Top of the Pops. But if you want to do Top of the Pops, you got to make a video because they had a rule thing. You had to have a video <laughs> to be on Top of the Pops. Top of the British uh Music shows with all their rules requirements. <laughs> yeah, a Lip-syncing. show where you don't perform the uh, song yourself either. Um, yeah, Top of the Pops is fucking weird. And so they shot a video, which is, it was funny. It was like a 23 second video of them like climbing over some rocks going down a hill. And they were like, okay, let's slow it down and just make it run the length of the song. Like that was, <laughs> that was the whole video. <laughs> and then they wound up not playing Top of the Pops. So I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah, Valoria being like super catchy, I would say probably one of the most well-known songs in their discography, especially from the last, like it's that and Alec Eiffel are are the last two records that are probably the most well-known. And it has that killer theremin all over it. I love that. And Valoria does, Valoria also kind of feels like a Doolittle song too. Like it feels similar to some songs on Doolittle. Revisiting it for me after not hearing it for a while and then just kind of listening with intent to like see what's going on. Because I knew your take was better than Doolittle. And I'm like, I love Doolittle. And I know the things you don't. I know the things on Doolittle that would you would not like. Like, I, I get it. There's stuff on there where I'm like, yeah, I know why you don't like Dead. Or yeah. uh, I know why you don't like Monkey. This monkey's gone monkey's to heaven. Gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. There's weird songs on that record. That record grew on me. More so, I think, because I was like, well, I got to go see this record front to back, so I better listen to it. And then it like that's when I was just like, OK, I do love these songs now. So I was just like, OK, intently listening to this album, being like, OK, what is it? What's going on here? What's, what are they trying differently? And ultimately, I think Bossa Nova is probably more of an even record than Doolittle. It's more even than that one. I do still like Doolittle better. I just think the highs are higher on Doolittle than here. But. I love the hell out of this. Like revisiting it, I was just like, this record rules. And I get why I got so many positive reviews. Yeah. And I guess if I think of it critically, I understand why it's like people are like third best. You know, like that's a that's the thought. Because it's just like those first two LPs are just so, so highly above that it's so hard to like follow that up. But they I think they followed it up well. I mean, I would have liked more Kim involvement on this record, ultimately, just because I do think she is a very interesting songwriter. Sidebar, I did listen to Pod as well this week to get ready for the show. Mm-hmm. Bossa Nova is a better record than Pod. Yeah, Pod doesn't like I don't think that she figured out what the Breeders was. I think the next Breeders record is better, like way, way better. Yeah. But Pod, I was just like, yeah, this was them experimenting and trying things out. And you got Steve Albini as your producer, so you're gonna he's gonna let you do the weirder stuff. Yeah. And so like he's kinda, just gonna set the mics up and record it. He yeah, he lets you indulge in your like weirdo songwriting. Whereas with like the next record, I think they worked with someone different who was like, Okay, let's try and do something big here. And then they do like Cannonball, which was like a plat the record's like platinum selling. So like that record yeah. did really well. But and even like tonally like she's on the album, but like she doesn't really feel that strong of a presence. Like you can yeah. hear her do some backing vocals and like it's her playing, but it's a very guitar forward record. So like her playing is very limited or it's very 
it's it's lower in the mix. It's not as prominent as it was on the first two albums. But like I look at this track listing and I'm like, half of this album is excellent. Like just yeah. excellent songs. I mean, Valoria, Allison, yeah, all over the world, Dick for Fire, God, yeah, Havelina, uh, which I'm partial to, but yeah, Stormy Weather's pretty good. Is she weird? Is that's my least favorite song. The you know not great, but it's interesting and it's memorable. Yeah, is she weird? Is probably my least favorite song. And then I would put maybe Anna right behind it because it's just like kind of whisper singing on that song. Yeah. And then I put Stormy Weather because I, I don't. It was fine. But yeah, Valoria, Allison, all over the world is so that that chorus on that song just like sticks in your head so so well. Um, and Dig for Fire. I think Dig for Fire might be the best song on the album it's my favorite song on the album i think it's a better single than valoria because there's this like very 1990s sounding sound on that song it sounds like an nxs song almost like it has that i don't think it has an electronic drum kit on it but it has like that snare that pops just like an electric drum like if it had a very much like oh this is a this is uh what you would hear on like a the radio in 1990 like the pre grunge alternative rock sound like that, just big pops on those <laughs> drum kits and your NXSs and your Jesus Jones. And even like what Jesus and Mary chain were doing at this time. Yeah. Which you mentioned Jesus and Mary chain. One of my notes is, and maybe one of the reasons why this record does appeal to me so much is bossa Nova sounds like the pixies trying to do a Jesus and Mary chain. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could see that. The later like they days. were just not, like, not, on tour listening to like Darklands, you know, or <laughs> what was out by them at this point? Uh, the first three. So it would have been. Yeah. Psycho because automatic Darklands came out in 89. Yeah. It has a automatic feel to it at yeah. times. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's a lot. And there's a lot of it too. That reminds me and probably because it's such a guitar forward record. A lot of it reminds me of late Husker do and sugar. And, and Bob Mould, especially that kind of like intense guitar tone with really poppy melodies on a lot of these songs. Yeah, guitar tone. Yeah, uh, down down to the well has a riff that sounds like Nirvana stole. Like I feel like Nirvana stole that yeah. riff, and because we know Nirvana, what we're big, Kirk Cobain was a big Pixies fan, so like that riff specifically sounded like what did it sound like? It sounded like a song, a late song, like an in utero. Yeah, it sounds yeah. Maybe even like an unplug like a song on unplugged. But yeah, the, the album has like five covers on it. But I thought The Happening is a really good song with this fun kind of like falsetto in there. I, I that one has a little bit of a hook to it too. And then I like Hangwire a lot cuz Hangwire also felt like a like a harder edge do little B-side. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen people say that the B-side of this record, the, the last half of this record falls off. And I'm like, the last half starts with Dig for Fire <laughs> is followed by Down to the Well, The Happening, which The Happening is kind of like, uh, you know, Gouge Away again. So <laughs> not quite as good as Gouge Away, but still uh, Hangwire, Stormy Weather. And I think it ends very nicely. I think Havelina is a very nice ending, a soft, it's pretty good. little ending. It's a good ender because I, I think Havelina and Cecilia Ann are like good bookends for this album because I don't know where else you would put the surf cover like that doesn't go anywhere else on the album. Yeah, 
an intermission. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a middle of the record thing. You could maybe start the B side with it, but like then it bumped Dig for Fire up to the A side. I like having all over the world a Dig for Fire, like splitting the sides. Like I, I think those are good because all over the world has even like a Talking Heads sort of feel to it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's the and that's an interesting thing too is like all over the world is like it's this five minute song and it's like it's got that chorus but it also has these big long exploratory stretches like it is a very atypical song structure pretty talking heads for sure mm-hmm. especially uh, like just speaking being like tongues era gonna talking. wander into this like rhythmic section you know how like on uh burning down the house one of their biggest songs it just kind of meanders off into the distance <laughs> at the end it's just like do, 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 like all this the drumming just at the end of that song it just goes like it just and it kind of just peters out too it's just like that's so funny that it's like one just, of their biggest songs ever and it has a non-ending it's just bernie world like wiggling the, the little <laughs> pitch bender jerry harrison <laughs> <laughs> yeah like really paying attention to this record i was just like okay this record is definitely much better than its reputation yeah which its reputation is still positive not, yeah critically very well received but it's yeah as far as like the the listener hits perspective yeah i think it just i think it just gets overlooked and tromplemon gets overlooked against the first two records because they were in decline and falling apart pretty much immediately after their success yeah they broke up like right after that album was even released like it was they were done i did kind of want to get some feedback from people i I posted it in the discord that we were talking about this album and so i kind of wanted to get some feedback and then we got some comments on the patreon too as well and uh our buddy steve long host of the returning podcast punk rock and pinfalls which i believe i'm going to be a guest on talking about AEW new japan's forbidden door show this weekend so go this will come out after that episode so go back and check that out his stance was it's not really as good as its predecessor nor the album that followed it but it's still a solid album it's just album steve's a bigger fan of trompelmon it seems Jason, who runs the Substack Songs About Chocolate and Girls, his response was, I understand the importance of the Pixies, but I can't stand Frank Black. <laughs> Frank Black is a very annoying, disagreeable person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I asked him, as a, as a person or a musician? And he said, a person mainly, but musically as well. <laughs> yeah. Vocally, I've always liked Kim's songs over his. It's like, yeah, yeah that's, that's fair. Uh, I mean, it's very obvious that when they finally kicked Kim out of the band and then they hired Kim Shattuck to replace her of the Muffs on bass, Kim lasted like four months. Yeah, because she was relieved of her duties or something like she was essentially like basically fired, too. But they didn't use the word fired. I think it was just a matter of this. Kim also didn't want to take Frank's shit. (laughs) So they never hired a Kim again. Dave Brown of One Band Five Songs, he said, for my money, the Pixies' best records are Doolittle and Trump Lamont. So there's a, there's a double like Trump Lamont. Maybe I need to revisit Trump Lamont. And then over on the Patreon, I got some comments as well. So Brian, who we actually had on the show talking about thrice, he said, I like Helmet, but my vote's going for Bossa Nova. And then he sent me a message later on Instagram, kind of really saying his opinion on the album. 
And he said, fun fact, Bossa Nova was the first Pixies album I ever owned. A friend of my mom's had Doolittle, and I was obsessed with it. But I could never find it at the record store down the street from me. But they did have Bossa Nova. So, like, that's that's an, a big one for Brian. And our Madball mystery caller told told us uh, he's a Pixies guy. And because <laughs> this is when we we're still voting. And he loves Frank Black's solo as well. And said Bossa Nova is great. The other two albums are too obvious. If you're going to talk about a Pixies record, I guess that's what. Because that was our thinking, too. We were just like, out of the Pixies records to talk about. This is the one. This is probably the one no one's going to choose of the four. Right. I mean, or the fewest number of people would choose. I wouldn't say no one because I would have chosen this one. <laughs> I think there's a chance, too, that like if we would have had a guest on and they had like a real strong affinity for this album, they would have picked it. Like I could see like in the future, somebody choosing Trump Lamont to talk about. But and I, th- I do think, yeah, Serverus and Doolittle maybe being the like obvious choice that if like you gave them the year, what, 89 and 88, because they did a, a record every year. The first three years. <laughs> They did three albums in a row in each year. And yeah, those are like the kind of obvious picks that people would just not choose those albums to talk about because it's just kind of like so on the nose when you're talking about that year. And yeah, the album actually wound up being at the time Doolittle was their best selling, but then Bossa Nova like surpassed it when it came out. It wound up being their best selling record at the time. And I think it's probably since then have been passed back over. But yeah, at the time it did really well. Uh, the album hit number 70 on the Billboard charts in the U.S. and number three in the U.K. Very positively reviewed. Select Magazine named it Album of the Year. And it is featured in the book 1001 Albums to Hear Before You Die. Which is interesting because certainly not at the expense of Doolittle. I mean, how many Pixies records are in it then? Like, there's yeah. a chance all three of them are in there. Maybe all four. Bossa, Bossa Nova and Doolittle. Um, not Surferosa, which I is guess. an interesting choice to make. That's a that's a bold stance, I think. Yeah, I I don't agree with it because I believe because Surf Rosa is the better is the best Pixies record. But and it's the first one. So it's like it has that distinction. But yeah, if it pushes people to listen to Bossa Nova, which I think is an underrated record. Mm hmm. Unappreciated. Not underrated. That's the it sold well and it was critically very well received. It's such an it's such an interesting like. It's purely a historical historical ret- devalue of the album. Yeah, like a, it's a retroactive uh, overlooking of it. Yeah, it's very strange. But even I have done it to myself. So I don't know. Maybe because it's not like, I don't know, because there's even a story behind it. You know, like the band was on the outs. They took a hiatus. They were burned out. So there is a story there, too. But I guess just because maybe because it didn't take any like big swings i don't know i think it swung more than people give it credit for i just think that the end result is something that is much more listenable than a big swing of a record would have you think yeah i think i think the choice to produce the record to write and produce the record the way they did was a massive swing it just happened to connect (laughs) yeah and when you take big risky swings like that very few bands actually pull them off so people just maybe think that this was more prepared than it was. I also wanted to mention, too, that the Pixies have since reunited and released four more albums. And I know no one who has listened to any of them or that like them. <laughs> Talk about a band who's just kind of like tarnishing their own legacy. But also, like, 
it, there's such a clear divide from the eras that nobody's like, man, these four new albums that nobody likes by the Pixies sure are ruining these old albums. The old albums, I guess, are just cemented in stone and they'll never, you know, you can't take away from them, no matter how many bad Frank Black solo records. And essentially, that's what Pixies albums are now. Yeah. Yeah. The Pixies really have four records that are all over three and a half stars and one over four and four albums that are all under three. (laughs) Such an extreme divide. And like, to be fair, though, like I listened to some of the first reunion record and I was like, this is awful. I hate this. And then never tried any of the other ones. But I've also never heard anything by anybody saying you should listen to the new Pixies album. I've never heard a person say you should listen to the new Pixies album. The only thing I ever heard was, did you hear that new Pixies album? Oh, man. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't. If anybody out there listening to this has heard those records and thinks there's something really worthwhile checking out, maybe let us know. I'm always curious when a band has a lot more records than you remember or think of. And I'm like, what's on those? They feel like a mystery to me. Like, What are you going to get in there? I do think that if I just listen to all of them, I'll be like, why did I do that? And there's been no solo Frank Black stuff since the Pixies reunion. So that kind of gives you an idea. Now, I do understand. I've listened to some Frank Black solo stuff that I've enjoyed. So I know he has good stuff out there. Um, I just know that he's also super hit or miss. Yeah. I mean, his 90s stuff is like the most well-regarded, but he's got some 2000s stuff that's Black uh, Frank Black Francis. Like, that's a pretty well-regarded, and that's 2004. So uh, Blue Finger, that one's pretty high as well. And the Breeder stuff is better regarded, too. Maybe it's one of those things where you kind of needed that conflict, the internal turmoil to... I mean, not necessarily, because, you know, Kim's mostly absent from this record, and I think it's great, so... But there's still probably that (laughs) seething, like, (laughs) frustration with each other, because they're not talking, too, which has to lead to some, like, uncomfortableness in the studio if they're still not talking to each other and they're recording a record. Which I can't even imagine. I understand getting frustrated and irritated with each other in the studio, especially if someone keeps making mistakes (laughs) or, yeah, whatever. Or there's been miscommunication. Like, I understand miscommunication happening and still being able to make a record together. But I can't I can't imagine being able to work with each other in the studio and hating each other that much. Yeah. But record label, I mean, record contracts are what they are. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, not that not that the Pixies were like a major. I mean, they were on Electra, but that was U.S. distribution for AD to the U.K. Yeah. So how much were they really tied to it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, let's give it a rating and wrap this up. What are you giving it? I'd, I'd probably say it's like a 4.25. I mean, I have it as a four on your music, so. I think I liked it more than that, but I'm not to the level of putting it up to 4.5. Because, like I said, as much as I love Surferosa, it's still not exactly a five-star record for me. Yeah, uh, it's not a five-star record for me. Um, it's, I think I'm going four. four and a, I could be talked into four and a quarter. There's some songs that are like four and a half stars on here that I love. Yeah. Um, but they're, they still will do those things that the Pixies do on every single record that I just am like, I don't really like that. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's no Pixies record for me that is no I'm a no skips person, but sometimes there is just like, man, I don't like this song. I won't skip it, but I'll just be like, man, I sure don't like this song. I've been glad when it's over. 
I make myself listen to the songs I don't like. And they have that on every album. So it's that like we want to be experimental side of the band that I'm just like, but I don't want you to be your best stuff, your catchy stuff. (laughs) You know, you don't have to be that experimental. (laughs) Fight those urges to experiment. That's my saying. (laughs) Or or experiment, but then try to make it not sound experimental. (laughs) You can experiment as long as it doesn't sound like an experimental song. (laughs) There's ways to do that. Just put in cool sounds. Like, you don't have to (laughs) make the song bad. You can have that weird part, but try and make it come back to, like, a good chorus. (laughs) Give me a hook, and then you can do your weird bridge. (laughs) Weird bridge, weird outro, go for it. (laughs) Big hook, but, like, I don't know, recorded in an echo chamber? You know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, make the production weird and experimental, but... (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our little deep dive here on Bossa Nova. I enjoyed really listening to it. I think I got more out of listening to this and talking about it than I would have any other Pixies record. Well, let's do a let's do a future record. Let's <laughs> just be like, what the fuck are they doing on here? <laughs> Stay tuned for an I'm listening to see if I got curious enough to see what that, what happens next. But it's going to be an episode where you're like, well, I did it. I listened to all four post reunion <laughs> Pixies records in one week. <laughs> and I have things to say. <laughs> uh, give us a rating or a review on iTunes or Spotify. We say iTunes all the time, man. Apple, you sure you can't change your branding. We we remember the one thing. Don't you can't change it to something else. Apple Podcasts. We have a four point nine on Spotify, which is pretty cool. Which I think it means like everybody does like five stars, and then like one person did four and a half. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's how you get a four point nine. Which is way better than our 3.8 on uh, Apple because of those dorks in the beginning who got mad at us for not liking MDC, but which we've never covered. (laughs) But anyway, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. To order punk, call the number on your screen. Rush delivery is available. Remember, this special offer is not sold in stores.